Welcome to Where Parents Talk. My name is Leanne Castellino. Our guest today is a psychologist, writer, and an author of multiple titles on topics including family, relationships, and adolescence. Dr. Terry Apter is also a mother of two and a grandmother of four. Her latest book is called The Teen Interpreter, a guide to the challenges and joys of raising adolescents. Dr. Apter joins us today from her home in Cambridge in the UK. Great to have you along and thank you for being here. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Apter, so much to talk to you about, but I want to get into what made you want to write The Teen Interpreter. Well, I'm very concerned when I see teens and parents believe that they're hopelessly at odds, that their relationship is doomed, that adolescence is a time when they're trying to separate and um, that it's, you know, it's bound to be a difficult time. I sort of, I want to reintroduce parents to their teens so that they see that their teens still love them, um, that they remain dependent on that love, they still want their parents' approval. They want their parents to see them and get to know them anew. And um, that uh, urge is often shrouded by myths that um, teens are bound to rebel against their parents. And a Freud called adolescence the um, a psychological version of parent-teen divorce. She really thought that, you know, and you still hear that parents saying, I know they want to separate from me. They want to become their individual person. They want to be, um, you know, they want to develop their own identity different from their parents, but they also want that relationship to remain whole. And a lot of the Um, the parents and adolescents is actually made worse by parents' inability to see what it is that teens really want from them. And so I, you know, I want the parent to become the interpreter of the teen, the, the ability to read the teen. So that's the aim of the book. Anyone listening to that description who has a teenager is going to be like, finally, oh my goodness, all the things that you just described are things that I've, I'm experiencing. And, and how do I, as a parent, with everything else going on in the world today, interpret what it is that my teenage boy or girl is telling me and how much is too much and how much is not enough? Okay, well... Um... I think when you first have your child, parents are normally, um, you know, immensely curious about who this um, being is, who this son, daughter, whatever is. They really want to get to know their child. And so they're watching out for little signs and you can see the rhythm. It's a you know, it's been described as a kind of dance uh, or choreography between parent and infant, as the parent is mirroring what the infant is doing and the infant is just looking adoringly at the parent. That kind of thing seems to come very naturally to us. What is much less natural is that warm, open curiosity towards a teen, but the teen still needs it. 
you know, not in the same way, not to the same extent, not on a minute by minute um, detail as um, the child did as an infant, but still needs it. And so learning, um, again, to retain that warm curiosity, step from what often seems like an attack and a rejection. You know, you hear parents say, I can never say the right thing. Uh, every time I open my mouth, um, she complains. Um, I can't do anything for her. You know, they want to, you should step away from that and take a new look at what messages the teen is giving you and read those anew. Because often the teen is saying, um, you know, you don't, you're not keeping up to date with me. You think I'm the little child you once knew. I'm really very different, but you're not taking this in and you're acting on old assumptions and I want you to see me anew. So often the um, teen will try to sort of rattle the parent, um, you know, sh shake her out of those old assumptions about, um, you know, who I am. Um, and, you know, so I'm in the book trying to give a, a kind of toolbox and a context for interpreting the teen's irritability, the teen, those identity reminders, the um, emotional upheaval that sometimes is just put down to teen hormones, but is much more complex and interesting than that. It's so interesting because I think most of us realize to some basic extent that there's a lot going on in the adolescent yeah. developmental phase of life. If we're going to look at the brain science for a second, mm. what can you tell us in sort of layman's terms that would be helpful to parents in terms of a foundational um, foundational pieces that they need to know about that may influence their approach to how they parent a teenager? Okay, well, that's a, a great When the brain science um, first um, it became widely known, and this was in the late 1990s, because it wasn't until then that there was sufficient brain imaging techniques to look at how living brains were functioning. Um, but when that started, one of the first things that was noticed was that um, the prefrontal cortex, which you can sort of think of the executive or control center of the brain, that, were, that was very inefficient in the adolescent years. Um, so of course, teens are impulsive, um, you know, they're not good at uh, stepping back from an immediate reward, they're not good at measuring risk, and they're, you know, all too willing to take risks that we know um, are really unacceptable, and certainly a parent for this beloved teen feels is unacceptable. So initially, the um, brain science was confirming a lot of the negative stereotypes of teens. It was saying, so you heard things like, yes, your teen is crazy, and don't blame me, blame my brain. Um, because it was as though it was saying, well, teens are just um, disorganized risk takers. Um, and there's nothing you can do. Yes, they're crazy. Um, don't blame them, blame their brain. But 
more and more as we're getting to understand how the brain is growing and developing, um, we can see that parents can take a very positive role in actually helping shape and grow their teen's brain. So sometimes we talk about three systems in the um, teen psyche. So there's the reward system and you know, teens are very keen on novelty, um, on excitement and you know, that really, uh, those are their big rewards. But there's also um, a regulation system and that sort of regulates emotions, allows them to manage all those very strong, difficult emotions they're experiencing um, and also allows them to regulate their craving for rewards. And there's also a relationship system. You know, what do relationships do? How do they fit into that? Now, if parents understand that this important relationship system, which they, you know, they, they play a key part in that, um, that if they uh, help a teen reflect on their emotions, reflect on what they're doing, and feel that they're being acknowledged and that they're being understood, or at least that a parent wants to understand them, this really helps grow their regulation system and that helps control their reward system. So, you know, we've all heard the um, phrase, you know, you name something to tame it. And that is very, very true with teen emotions and impulses. I mean, teens are very keen to understand their own emotions, they're becoming more and more aware of how complex emotions are. So, um, you know, a teen is able to use emotional words in a much more granular, detailed way than a child. You know, a, a child can use the word mad or tired or angry, you know, interchangeably or sad, interchangeably. Teens are trying to sort of sift this out, but they realize they can be angry, but they can also be embarrassed or ashamed and they can be hurt. Um, and if parents sort of help them with that, not by being ultra sophisticated and poets <laughs> themselves in um, dealing with a complex emotional language, but just in willing to listen to them and let their teens talk and you know, stay with them even when things are difficult. That is really important in helping the teen build that regulation system. So the more primitive bits of the brain, um, you know, impulses, uh, panic um, and excitement don't overwhelm them. It sounds so reasonable as you describe it, but in the moment of whatever yeah. is going on, where, you know, it could be, again, um, reckless behavior or something that is, you know, considered risk taking. Yeah. Uh, what could you suggest to parents in that moment? Because we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about the parent regulating how they're going to react. Yeah. Yes. At the same time as watching whatever is going to unfold or whatever conversation they're going to have. So yeah. could you give us some sort of practical tips around that? 
Well, for the first thing is that parents shouldn't expect too much of themselves. I mean, they will lose it sometimes. Um, teens can be infuriating and also um, can arouse a lot of anxiety, uh, you know, and fear, uh, you know, what's happening to my teen? What influences are there? Am I losing control? You know, am I losing, you know, is my teen exposing uh, to undue, undue risk. Um, so, you know, I think parents will lose it um, and they will not be modeling, therefore, the best form of self-regulation. Um, but, you know, Donald Winnicott talked about the good enough parent and what he meant was not simply that you only have to be good enough, um, you know, you don't have to be perfect. He was actually saying, it's important to be imperfect. You, uh, um, your children need to see that um, you can break down, that you know, relationships can almost seem to rupture or it can be badly bruised, but yet you come together again. And that rupture and repair, whether it's in regulation or within the relationship, um, sets a very important model for what's possible. And it's very reassuring because when you don't want someone who see, sees something bad happening within a relationship or within their own self-control, that they will, um, you know, that they'll think, you know, I'm facing doom, then that will, um, you know, that will, you want to get over that. You want to be able to think uh, this relationship can be stretched, um, you know, it can be bruised, but we can come together again. I can lose it, but I can also regain control and regain, um, you know, my self-respect. Uh, and I, so, you know, in the moment things can go wrong. And when I say, um, modeling good um, behavior and modeling uh, warm curiosity. If, you, if that is the case about 30% of the time, that's plenty. But um, so what can they do? Uh, is that they can uh, stand by their teens even when their teen is very upset. So instead of trying to fix a bad, you know, a negative emotion, show that you're listening, show that, um, you know, you want to hear it. Take your time, give your teen uh, a little bit of space to talk. Uh, don't dismiss the uh, emotion. Don't say, oh, don't be morbid. You know, don't punish them for their feelings. Um, yeah, and dismissing it would be, you know, oh, that's nonsense. Um, and also don't try to distract. I mean, yes, you want to distract them with some kind of comfort, but you don't want to distract them in the sense of don't think about it at all. And if they don't want to talk about it, well, give them time. Don't insist they talk about it now. But you're always looking for, you know, that window of opportunity to start a conversation. And often, and you know, especially parents of boy teens think my teen doesn't want to talk to me. You know, there's no point in this. Uh, I, he, you know, I get one-word answers. I think if your teen isn't seeming to talk to you and you're not getting enough um, information, the, 
the, the, the route is not to walk away and say, you know, I'll wait till he's 24, um, but to ask better questions, maybe more concrete, um, watch your body language, make sure you're not exhibiting anxiety yourself, be sensitive to whether they want to be touched or whether they don't. Some teens are very, um, you know, so tense um, in certain circumstances that even a touch will um, overexcite them, overstimulate them. But sometimes when a teen is, you know, all over the place, touching um, just, a, you know, touching a hand, touching a shoulder can be very reassuring. It sort of reminds them that they have physical boundaries. Such simple tips and strategies, but mm. seemingly, you know, incredibly powerful in the moment as you're describing them. I want to dig a little bit further into the whole uh, concept of relationships and, of course, how important they are all the time, but certainly in that adolescent uh, time of life. The child-parent versus the child-peer relationship. You know, many researchers have found uh, that there's a fundamental shift in that dynamic. Uh, these days, it would appear that more and more, uh, you know, teens value their friendships more when they're in that phase and they would value their parents. Where do you stand on that? Well, um, friends do become uh, very important in adolescence. Actually, they're important throughout throughout our lives. Um, but in adolescence, um, it revs up. It becomes much more um, bound up with our sense of who we are. And teens like to talk to one another. Let me say that both boy teens and girl teens, it's often said that just girl teens engage in very deep personal conversations with friends. Boys do too. Though in late adolescence, it becomes a little more complicated because um, guy code thin and they are no longer so effusive, so warm, so open about their need for one another uh, in their late teens. But anyway, uh, friendships do become very important. And some parents say, you know, it's as though my teen has joined a tribe. There are all these signals about, um, and they share the same hairstyle, grooming, clothes, the way they talk, the music they listen to. Uh, yes, indeed. But um, who influences us is, you know, very complex. Friends, in a way, influence you more in the moment, um, in how you dress, uh, how you appear. Um, but uh, parents' influence is really long term. And it does, you know, research shows that it's, you know, those family values, the uh, ways of interacting um, are uh, lifelong and, uh, you know, much greater influences than um, your teenage friends. So I think it's important to remember that um, attachment and influence shouldn't be thought of as a pie with a certain um, set sections of, you know, how much can be doled out. It's much more elastic than that. And um, parents are still incredibly important. Um, and also parents can influence um, teens' friendships in some ways. Um, it has been 
notice that parents who try to get to know their teens friends, even in a low key, just sort of hospitality kind of way, um, uh, are much less likely to be, you know, to, to be seen as a really bad influence on the teen. So it isn't easy because, you know, the uh, teen friend who comes into the home will not want to sit down and have a long chat with a parent. But um, even just a, a hello, an acknowledgement, you know, I see you here, I know you're here, and, you know, I'm welcoming you, but they're all stories. Uh, that can be very helpful. Now, in speaking about the research, Dr. Apter, I'm curious, in the course of writing The Teen Interpreter, was there any research that you came upon that you uncovered uh, that really struck you? Oh, um, yes. So I think uh, the first thing would be on the teen's social brain and how that is really very different from either a child's or an adult. So they um, process social interactions in a very different way. Um, they're more likely to see a neutral face, you know, a face that a child or a grown-up would see as neutral. A teen is more likely to see it as um, angry or fearful. Uh, and that goes along way to explain some of their heated responses to parents who are trying to be neutral. Um, so I think um, th that's, um, that's very important. I think also um, there's a lot of interesting research on what's called interoception, which is um, it's the sixth sense of, um, you know, what's going on in our bodies and how that helps us or from that we build emotions. So, um, you know, the beating of the heart, the digestive system, um, our, you know, our blood, our muscles, all of these things actually play a part in how we interpret the world around us as either positive or negative and how we feel about it. And, um, you know, teens with their changing bodies are, and their changing social worlds are building emotions in new ways and understanding this as opposed to thinking of those um, uh, widely varying emotions as just hormones gone amok, uh, I think it's very helpful. And then I think the third thing I, point to is um, research on social media, which has to be better. I mean, you know, social media is a new phenomenon. You hear a lot about it does this, it does that, it has this effect on teens, it has that effect on teens. And it's really a bit of a mess. Um, so I think we have to do much more research on um, looking at the different ways teens use social media. You know, sometimes it's very passive and they are just um, scrolling through and uh, maybe being buffeted by a kind of envy, you know, even for people they don't admire, but glossy um, images, why am I not like this? Um, but sometimes it's very positive and proactive. And of course, during the lockdowns, 
um, the uh, some aspects of social media and um, smartphone use were very important in sustaining um, teens' well-being because it connected them to, with friends. Um, and a, I mean, another thing is you uh, is research that shows just how devastating embarrassment is to teens. I mean, you know, embarrassment is um, far more excruciating than um, physical injury. Um, you know, they, they, they have a looking glass self, which doesn't mean they look in the mirror and see themselves as their reflection in the mirror. It means that um, they need to look at other people and say, who am I? Because they're not yet aware of who they are. They're trying to invent, create an identity. And, um, you know, so in that uncertain period, they're often looking to other people to tell them who they are. Um, and of course, when parents do that and don't get it right, then that sparks a teen's irritability. And they'll say, you know, you don't know me, um, you know, you're not saying the right thing. And parents hear that as you should go away. But what the teen is saying, really, you should work a bit harder to get to know me and see what it is. I'm see who I'm trying to become and help me become that person. Such an important point. Uh, you know, one of the points that you make in your book is that children need their parents longer than society suggests. Now, this mm -hmm. might come as a huge shock to a lot of people, or it may yeah. not to others. It depends. But could you elaborate on what your thought is on that? Why do you believe children need their parents longer than what society suggests? Okay, so we have um, sort of 18 as the notional adulthood, or sometimes 21. Um, and by that time, you know, teens have grown up a lot. But there are uh, but they're not actually adults, I would say, until about the age of 24. Now, there are two different ways of um, explaining that. The first is the environment, you know, in our uh, society today demands a huge amount from um, adults, much more in terms of complexity than it did some decades ago, previous generation. Players um, expect a lot of training, a lot of experience um, in order to set up your own independent home. Uh, you can't just get your first good job as you could maybe in the 50s or 60s, 1950s or 1960s. Um, you know, expenses are just very, very different. So you know, people will say, oh, well, the problem is that um, teens buy their little, buy their gadgets or young adults buy their gadgets um, and they need this and that. And that's why they can't afford a home. But if you do the maths, um, saving on gadgets is not going to allow them to live independently. It just, you know, it's, it's a big ask. So a lot of the um, markers of adulthood, um, being on a career track and being able to start your own family and being able to live in some way independently 
those are the markers of adulthood, um, they're not going to happen um, early. So that's the cultural social side. But then there's also the brain side, what we now know about the developing brain. And the developing brain is not fully streamlined and efficient um, and adult in form, uh, either in structure or in function until about the age of 24. So, you know, there's so much um, about how uh, we are infantilizing our teens if we continue to give them a home to live, help them with things. Um, and I think that that is very unfair. And, you know, it, 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 it can internally with the teen relationship in, the, um, in those late adolescent years, the late adolescent years that go into what we think of as young adulthood. I think of them as thresholders. They're on the threshold to adulthood, but they're not yet ready to step into it. And, you know, we have to accept that. And those late teens, early adults who have a lot of family support uh, in terms of they're there for me, um, you know, they'll help me talk through uh, a problem or help me find out how to negotiate um, a job application. Those are the teens who make a better transition into young adulthood. I'd like to end by asking you, Dr. After, what do you want readers of The Teen Interpreter to leave with? Okay, well, they're not going to leave it with the idea that um, parenting a teen is easy, but they will leave it with um, a reminder of how exciting, how joyous it is to participate in <clears throat> this phase of your child's life. And they will leave it with the that <clears throat> They can use to matter to their teen, that they can always have a positive impact on their teen. Um, and I hope that they will have, you know, a toolbox for um, making a positive uh, contribution, continuing positive contribution to their teen's life. That's what I'd like. Certainly a wonderfully optimistic note to end on. Dr. Terry Apter, psychologist and author of The Teen Interpreter, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure.